All right, the book of James. Well, before we dive into this letter, it is helpful, and and you'll know that if, if you've been here a little while, you know that I do this every time we start a new book. It's good to get some of the historical context of how this letter was written, where it came from, what it was all about. Because here's what happens. For a lot of people, they become a Christian. They hear the the message of the gospel. They become a Christian and somebody hands them a Bible. And they're like, here, read this. It'll tell you what you need to know. And you open up the Bible and it's all these people and characters and names that are hard to pronounce and places that you've never heard of and it's ancient and there's all these cultural things going on and for a lot of people when they jump into the Bible and just start reading they're reading they're looking at the words but they don't understand a lot of what's there because you're like "Ah, it's this thousand page book written the earliest stuff written nearly 2,000 years ago (laughs) The old stuff goes back 6,000 or whatever years ago. It's like, wow, what, what is it about all of this? So usually what I try to do when we start a new letter is I try to give you some of the context surrounding it so you have a handle on where does this really fit. Um, I know that you'll probably forget some of the history and the background surrounding it, but it still helps shape your view of the people and places of the Bible and really allows it to become more than just words on a page. All right, so that's why we we do some of this. Um, So today, uh, the message that I'm going to give you, it's going to lean a little more toward the teaching side rather than the preaching side. And and as a pastor, I'm called to kind of do both, teach and preach. So you might feel like, whoa, I'm back in school. And some of you who are currently in school, you're like, wait a minute, this is history class. It's all right, it's all right. Bear with me on it. And um, I think that you'll, you can find some good things to, to pull out of this today. All right, so as we start talking about this letter of James, it's first good to know sort of the, a little bit of the background of the early church. All right, the very last thing that the followers of Jesus heard from him on earth is recorded in the Bible. It's in the book of Acts. All right, and in Acts 1.8, Jesus said to, the, to his followers, he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then it tells us after that, he ascended into heaven. Literally, his followers watched him do the, the incredible, right? Go up into the sky and vanish before them. So that's the very last thing that Jesus said to his, his followers. And it was interesting because the followers there, they were in Galilee when they heard this. And he says, look, you're going to start in Jerusalem, but then you're going to end up in Judea and Samaria. Those were some of the surrounding regions of Jerusalem, all right? And, and as he did that, he went and gave them that statement, we find as we continue to read through the book of Acts that the church itself was born just a short time after that. Remember what Jesus said? He said, look, in Jerusalem, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And then from there, you're going to start going all over the place and and telling people about me. And that's what happened. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descended on a little prayer meeting. It tells us in, in Acts 1 verse 15 that there's about 120 people all right, so that's a pretty small group. Actually, if we brought all the kids in here, we'd probably be around that-ish number, okay? And a group of people were all gathered together in a room, 
and they're praying. And at that point, the Holy Spirit comes down upon them and the church is born in this really radical event. You can read about that if you want in in Acts chapter 1 and 2. And on that day, the day of Pentecost, it's called, the church in Jerusalem was established. Now, as you continue to read through the book of Acts, which is kind of a historical narrative of what happened at the beginning of the church, as you read through that, what you find is that Peter, who we just were studying, one of the twelve, you know, one of the, the disciples that was closest to Jesus, Peter and the rest of the twelve, the rest of those disciples, they were the leaders of the early church. It would only make sense, right? These were the 12 people that Jesus had called to himself and they had been with Jesus in all of his ministry. Jesus had trained them and discipled them and raised them up. Jesus had empowered them and taught them how to to heal and to cast out demons and to share the good news of the gospel. So it would make sense that these men who had been spending these three years in kind of Jesus' training school would be the ones that would begin leading the church there. And, And they did. And as you continue to go through the historical account of it, what you find is, after a little while, persecution within Jerusalem started happening. At first, the Christians were just kind of the weirdos that were doing their thing. And it wasn't a problem. But as that number began to grow, some of the Jewish people that had been established for years and years and years in Jerusalem didn't like the fact that there was kind of this other sect within Judaism kind of raising up. And so what happened is, they started getting into disagreements and arguments and then it escalated and it got worse and it got worse until ultimately what we find the first martyr in the, in, in the uh, Christian church, Stephen, being killed literally by, in one of these issues, all right? And so when that persecution broke out, you can find that in Acts 8, what happened was many of the followers of Jesus who had been living in Jerusalem scattered. They're like, hey, we're in the big city here and we're following after Jesus and the Jews here, which is our kind of cultural brethren, they don't like us anymore. The things are getting out of hand. Somebody's getting killed over this. I'm going back to my old farmland. I'm going back to where I used to come. I'm going out to the villages. I'm getting out of the city. I'm running away from all this mess and I'm gonna go somewhere else. And so that's what happened. In fact, I've got a little map here for you um, describing some of these surrounding regions. So Jerusalem is the, the, at the bottom you see there, that's the city of Jerusalem. You might want to picture it kind of like cities and counties. They're just called regions. But this would be as if this was where we're at in Chula Vista right here. In the green, that's the, the county of San Diego, all right? That's the region of Judea. And that, if you remember Acts 1.8, what did Jesus say? Hey, you're going to first speak about me in Jerusalem and then Judea. So that's the bigger region. And then on into Samaria. That's the next one up, the red area. That's like Orange County. <laughs> and then all, all the way up, as we'd see, Galilee is where a lot of, you know, Jesus' early, early life was. And that's the Sea of Galilee. That's where Peter was called, all those things. All through there. And what, what happened as time went on is it, it continued to expand. Not just these little regions, but what did Jesus say? And then into all the earth, right? That's the end of Acts 1.8. And that's what happened. In fact, as we had just been studying Peter, if you remember, where Peter died was in Rome. That's Italy. That's not in the Middle East at all. That's all the way across the Mediterranean Sea. Because what had happened is, as these followers continued to scatter and move throughout the Roman Empire, churches would spring up. 
And so what happened was those 12, the, the disciples that had been in Jerusalem leading the church, churches were now springing up all over the place. And so their job description changed and they had to start traveling. <laughs> and that's what they did. And as you go through history, you find that a lot of these disciples continued to go to all over the place, all throughout the, the regions all around. Now, what happened with that then is that the church that remained in Jerusalem needed leadership. Because the disciples who had been there at first, they started going in different places. And, and the leader that emerged there, emerged in the church of Jerusalem there, was most likely the author of this letter that we're about to study, James. That's where James started kind of coming to the surface. Now, to this day, the name James is a common name. In fact, if you go to babycenter.com and look at their list of popular names like I did, you'll find out that James is actually the number eight most popular name in uh, the world right now for naming a baby. Number eight. If you look up Brett, it's like 1,600 and something, okay? So eight is, is pretty good. That's top 10, all right? So even today in 2021, James is still a, a pretty common name. But way back in Bible times, James was a popular name as well. In fact, in the New Testament, um, there are four different Jameses. James I? James, James, yeah, I don't know. Many Jameses. Um, there's four of them mentioned in the New Testament. So the question is, as we study a book like this, what James was this? Which one was this? Now, if you were guessing... And if you know some of the Bible stories, you might think your first guess is a good guess, but it'll be wrong. You might think, well, it's probably James the Apostle. James, the brother of John. You go through and study the, the, the Gospels, and what do you hear? Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. They were the three that Jesus did all kinds of things with. There, there's many stories where it would be Jesus and all twelve. But there's also a lot of stories where it's just Peter and three. And who are the three? Peter, James, and John. So it's got to be that James, right? He knew Jesus. He was around Jesus. It's probably him. Well, it's not. Um, and that is an understandable mistake that people make. But what they miss is that the apostle James was killed in 44 AD by Herod. And you can read about that actually in Acts chapter 12. It tells us. He was one of the, he was actually the very first if you don't count Judas, the very first of the 12 to be martyred, all right? And this letter was probably written in the mid to late 40s. James was already dead, that James. So it wasn't going to be that James that wrote this letter, obviously. So what's the next thing you do? You say, oh, well, let's look at the, the letter and see what James says about himself, because maybe that'll give us some clues. And that's what we find today. So open up to James chapter one. Let's read verse one together. Here's what it says. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Oh boy, that's not giving us much to go on. James, a servant of God. Okay, great. <laughs> we know you're a Christian already. You're writing a book of the Bible, all right? Um, you're a servant of God. Ugh, not much to go on. Well, there's some, a few other keys, little bits of scripture that we can find um, that give us some insight on who this James is. 
And with very few exceptions, it's generally agreed that the author of this letter was James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, who was also the half-brother of Jesus. Now, some of you might be like, wait a minute, half-brother of Jesus? You telling me that Jesus had siblings? I'm telling you that Jesus had siblings. Prove it, you say. All right, I will. In Mark chapter 6, um, we get a, a mention of Jesus' half-siblings. Now, I don't know about you, but think about what that would have been like, being raised with Jesus as a, a sibling. I mean, that's like the perfect child complex to the max, you know. What about your brother, your older brother Jesus? Yeah, he's pretty good, pretty loving, pretty nice, never does anything wrong. Perfect. All right, well, we actually even know the names of many of these siblings. In Mark chapter 6, verse 3, what happened was Jesus had gone back to his hometown, his hometown in Nazareth. And as he, he's been doing ministry at, all through that region of Galilee, and he comes back to Nazareth, and so these people recognize him. They know him. He grew up there. And he comes into Nazareth to begin doing some ministry, and they're like, wait a minute. Who do you think you are coming in here all celebrity status, doing these things and preaching and all this? You're Jesus. And this is what they say in Mark 6, 3. They say, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, we can call him Jose, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Why? Because they recognized him. They're like, I don't know who you think you are, all high and mighty. We know who you are. We even know your family. All right? And if you're familiar with the story of Jesus' life, you'll also know that Jesus' earthly family was slow to believe that he was the Messiah. All right? You might not have known that. You might have thought they were his biggest fans. It's like, yeah, Jesus, he's amazing. You've got to listen to this guy. He's my, my big brother. Not the way it was. That's not what we find. Now, we know that, that Mary had been told in Luke chapter 1 that Jesus would do incredible things. But she didn't know all of the details. And we, we see that in Mark chapter 3 because in Mark chapter 3, as Jesus began doing his ministry, it, we have this really interesting story where Mary and his brothers come trying to get into Jesus, but there's a crowd in this house that he's at, and they're like sending messages through the crowd. Hey, can, it, can you tell Jesus he needs to come out? His, his mom and brothers are out here because we're not sure about this guy. <laughs> It looks like he's gone a little nuts because he's calling all these people to himself. What's happening? They were concerned for him. Um, and it seems that his brothers, including James, thought he was crazy. In John chapter 7, we have another little insight to James and the brothers. Because as Jesus, again, is starting to do his ministry, starting to go out and about, his brothers say to him, in John 7, 3, says, So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea. That your disciples may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, then show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. All right? So you might say, well, how on earth then do we think it's James 
is one of the, the lead, becomes a leader of Jerusalem, of the church in Jerusalem, and a, a, an author of a letter in the Bible. Well, it seems that it wasn't until after Jesus resurrected from the dead and appeared to James that he became a believer. All right? And we find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This isn't James writing, it's actually Paul writing. But just as he's describing what happened, we get a little bit of insight. All right, here's what it says. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. That's actually side note here that's a name that's Peter's other name all right they lived in a trilingual community so actually Peter had a Greek name a Jewish name and an Aramaic name Cephas is Aramaic for it all right Peter's the Greek and Simon Simon Peter you've heard that that's the the Jewish part all right that's for free that's bonus then then it says then after he appeared to Cephas then to the twelve Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Now, you you might say, well, hold on. That doesn't specifically say he, he, you know, appeared to James, his brother. But it does say James and then all the apostles. And most likely what we're inferring here is that they're talking about that James. The, the James that, who would become the leader in the church. Um, I can understand where people are like, I'm not sure. But that appears to be what is happening there. So somewhere in all of that, what we believe is that James had a meeting with the resurrected Jesus. And became a believer. And even by Acts chapter 1, James is there. It tells us that he was there in the the room devoting himself to prayer with his mother, with Mary. And he experienced the day of Pentecost. He was one of those 120 that were there. He was there when the Holy Spirit arrived. And and he became a central figure in the church in Jerusalem, which was was started off just made up of Jews. All right? And it would take several years for there to actually be a separation between Jews and, and Jewish Christians and the, from the Jewish community. Because originally they were just seen as a little sect within Judaism. In fact, the apostles themselves continued to follow the traditions, uh, the laws and the, the Jewish customs. Uh, you have an example of that in, in Acts, a really well-known story of, of um, um, Peter and John going to the temple to pray. At the hour of prayer, and then they raise some guy up, you know, who's, who's lame, right by the door there. And James led the church in those years, those kind of rocky, difficult years where persecution came up and where there's this shift from Judaism to, to Christianity and all this was happening. What we also know historically about James is that he presided over the first council of Jerusalem, which was in 49 A.D., and that was when the church in Jerusalem agreed that the Gentiles were a part of the Christian church. You can read about that in Acts 15. He was described by Paul in Galatians as one of the pillars of the church, along with Peter and John. Now, Paul specifically sets it up for us to make it clear, because instead of saying Peter, James, and John, like we always say, what, what Peter actually says is James and Peter and John. Because... The James that you think goes between Peter and John was already dead. 
All right, and that's what we find in Galatians 1.18. Um, Paul said this, he said, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter again, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Then in Galatians 2.9, he says, And then when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, talking about the church in Jerusalem, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. All right, so please understand, this is like some detective work of picking out every little bit and piece that we can find in the scriptures about who this James is. But I think that when we gather it all together, we have a pretty clear picture. Okay, this is who this James was. This is what he was doing. He was a leader in Jerusalem and he was the half brother of Jesus. All right, and James as we, we look at even some of those councils, we realize that he had risen to a place of prominence even ahead of Peter and John. James was the one who oversaw that whole council. He was the president of the council. When everybody came and brought the information about what was happening in the Gentile world and all of that, when all of that came up, James then was the one who made the declaration and say, all right, then this is what we're gonna do and this is what the letter is gonna say as we send it out to the Gentile world. So he had authority at that point. And it seems like with that authority, he wrote this letter. And it tells us also there in, in verse 1, if you'll remember, to who? To this dispersion. These Jewish Christians that had been scattered from the persecution. All right? Now, just to give you the end of James's life, after, the, after leading the church in Jerusalem for nearly 30 years, history tells us that he was martyred, killed for his faith, in 62 AD by the order of the Jewish high priest Ananus. So that was how James's life ended. All right, you still with me? All right, class, let's well, a little bit farther and then we'll start talking about some of the practical things of what we're gonna learn here in the book of James. In the first few hundred years of the church, it was uncertain if the letter of James would even make it into the Bible. All right, and a lot of times people wonder, how is it that we ended up with this Bible? I mean, these, you're telling me these letters came from all over the place, and some of them were, I heard, tucked away in a cave somewhere, and there's these things. Yes, it's a, it's a really fascinating process of how we came to get our Bibles. We don't have, it would take a class or two to try to explain all of those details to you. But I'm just going to focus in on James, and, and I want you to know that for a while... They were, the church wasn't sure if the letter would be part of the Bible. Um, part of the uncertainty surrounded a, about the questions of who this James was. It's not that this letter just popped up hundreds of years after Jesus. That's not it at all. In fact, the letter itself was well known to the earliest church fathers, but we're not exactly certain when it was included in the list. We do know that by 367 AD, all 27 books of the New Testament including James, were listed by Athanasius, um, who was a leader in the church at that time. And it was definitely accepted by the time uh, Jerome included it in the Latin translations of the Greek and Hebrew, which became known as the Vulgate. All right, But it was one of five letters that were kind of questioned early on as to does it fit into scripture. Now, some of these letters, it wasn't about are they real or not. That's, that's the questions that we hear now in modern times. Well, is it real? Was it just made up a long time ago? 
That wasn't the question for them. They were just trying to pick and choose and say, Lord, which ones really matter for the church forever? And one of the things that you'll notice about the book of James when we study it is James doesn't talk a whole lot about Jesus in the letter. You're like, well, hold on. Why would that be? Well, one of the primary reasons I think that James doesn't talk a lot about Jesus is because he's already presuming that he's writing to Christians. It's people that have already received the gospel that are already walking with Jesus and he just wants to talk about some other practical things. Now, there will be some references to Jesus, but that wasn't his, his focus for, for this little letter. All right? So the other, uh, the other letters, because you're probably curious, well, what were the other letters that were questioned? We just finished one of them, Second Peter. Second Peter, Jude, Second and Third John, and James. Those were the five that they weren't certain about. And it's also um, famously known that uh, about 1,100 years later, uh, or, or no, I, farther than that, 1,500 years later, Martin Luther famously doubted that James was scripture. And you might have heard that because Martin Luther um, was a, a theologian who had said, you know, um, I think James, it shouldn't be scripture because, it, because its emphasis on works seems to contradict Paul talking about faith, being faith alone for salvation. But as we're going to see as we study it, it doesn't contradict Paul's theology. It complements it. Okay, so if you've got a handle of that, part what is it that we're going to learn what is it in James that made the early church fathers say you know what this is useful for us we need to study this letter we need to know this letter we need to let these words change the way we live well the theme that we're going to see throughout this whole study is just making some really practical faith all right sometimes you come to church like if I sent you home right now you'd be like what was the point of that I got some good history lesson, but how is that going to change my life? Right? James doesn't mess around with a lot of other stuff. What James wants to do is he says, I want to give you some practical things of how you need to live life. And we see that a lot. He, he, he's going to get into our business. That's one of the issues with James. James is kind of blunt in a lot of places. He's, he's there. He blends the teachings of Jesus especially the Sermon on the Mount, there are 14 references to the Sermon on the Mount in the book of James. And he blends that, the teachings of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, with the book of Proverbs. It's kind of that style. Um, both Jesus and James being raised as Jews, they would have been very familiar with the book of Proverbs. They would have memorized those things. They would have had them read to them by their mom probably every day of here's some Proverbs that you need to learn. You need to understand these things. And so it has kind of that feel, like the wisdom, wisdom genre of, of Proverbs. James has a lot of one-liners, memorable statements. A lot of people don't have a whole lot of Bible verses memorized, but many of them will have a couple lines out of James in their list of memory verses because there's so many good one-liners in there. That's part of why people love this book. So many people do. It, James really focuses in on this practical faith, he doesn't go down some of the line where Paul gets into the philosophy and the deep theology. And that's hard for some people. Um, James, he's just, I'm cutting right to it. I'm going to be blunt. I'm going to tell you what you need to hear. And remember, he is writing, like I said, to believers. So there's not a lot of an evangelical focus or even a focus on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. James was a 
commanding leader and very direct. That's what we believe. When we see him in Acts and then when we read his letter, we're like, this was a no-nonsense kind of guy. James is going to straight up tell you, he's not going to say, maybe you ought to try this. Or why don't you do this? He didn't necessarily have the gentleness of his older brother Jesus <laughs> in some cases. James is more the type, he's like, yeah, you need to do that. Stop doing this. Start doing that. Let's go. That's James. Okay? Now, in that, we're going to find that James has 54 imperatives in only 108 verses. What that means is that basically every other verse has a command in it. Something for you to do. That's what an imperative is. It's a call to action or a command. It's loaded with that. And James is going to tell you to, what to do and what not to do. Now, one of the major problems in the early church is the same problem that we have today in the modern church. There's a difficulty to live out what we say we believe. Has anybody felt that way? Just me. No, it's many of us. Many of us will say, we will profess we are Christians. Well, what does that mean? Oh, it means a lot. And it means that I'm supposed to be living this way. And guess what? That's hard to do. And there's a difficulty that comes a lot of times when what our flesh wants to do and what we know we should do come into conflict. And lots of times we don't choose the right path. We choose the old path. Paul describes it as the old self and the new self, self at war. There's a battle a lot of times. And this is some of what James is going to talk about. He's going to say, look, here's some practical things that help you continue moving in the direction that you need to. Because let's think about it. Think about your own life. Do you feel like, hey, I'm always full of the fruit of the Spirit in my life. Everywhere I go, it's the fragrance of Jesus. I walk into a room and they just feel the mercy. They feel the grace. They feel the love. It's just good, good, good. Everywhere I go, whenever I go. It can be traffic, it can be the grocery store, it can be at the DMV, it's just glorious. No, probably not, maybe not. Some of you are close to that, I'm not. But that's what it is. Never being hypocritical or wishy-washy about things. Being people of faith rather than doubt. Responding with love instead of reacting in anger. Not playing favorites, not getting caught up in materialism. Being in control of the things we say. These are all things that, that James is going to dig into. And I'll tell you the fact, I struggle with many of these things. I, I'll tell you, a lot of things we're going to cover here are things that I regularly have conversations with the Lord about. I've tried to tell him, look, Lord, if you can teach me how to get rid of every speck of sin in me, I'll tell the church about how to do it. It'll be great. Uh, but so far, I'm sorry, you have to find a better pastor than me because we're still in process, right? And it's not just about you or I figuring it all out. What we know is that spiritual growth and maturity is a work of the Holy Spirit in us. And that's one of the things that we can get off track with when we read James because we say, oh, awesome, I love it. He, you're telling me he gives me 54 things I have to do? I can write a list of 54. I can count that high with a piece of paper. So if I can write down those 54 things and I do it, well, will I be good? 
Well, we realize, no, that's not exactly how it works, right? And this is the whole thing between faith and works and what comes first and how we know that the Holy Spirit is working these things out in us. It's, it's a work of the Holy Spirit. We work in tandem with him as he transforms and matures us. And James, though, wants to highlight some of the ways that we work with God as he changes us. And that's really my prayer for this study. When we go through here is that we would all grow in maturity together. Because guys, we need this. We need to grow into spiritual maturity. Our families need this. Our community and the world around us needs this. Warren Wiersbe, a, a Bible commentator, talked about this in, in looking at James. He says this, he says, all of these problems that James is going to address, all of these problems had a common cause, spiritual immaturity. Spiritual maturity is one of the greatest needs in, the, in churches today. Too many churches, listen to this, are playpens for babies instead of workshops for adults. After over a quarter century of ministry, I am convinced that spiritual immaturity is the number one problem in our churches. God is looking for mature men and women to carry on his work. And sometimes all he can find are little children who cannot even get along with each other. Ugh. I've been to some of those churches. Thankfully, you guys aren't like that yet. Don't start it. <laughs> but there's, there's a truth to that. What God's calling us to, guys, is to mature in our faith, to grow in our faith, to become these people that he created us to be. And too often, we fall short of that. We set the bar too low. Think about this as we, as we kind of wrap this up here. We know when we hear the gospel message that we were created for a relationship with God. If you go back and start at page one in the Bible and you read the Genesis account of creation, what we find out is God created us to be in relationship with him. He wanted to know us and have us know him. That was the whole thing. But then as soon as you get to Genesis chapter three, sin comes in and breaks the relationship and it makes things go sideways. And ultimately we see that when sin comes into people, it leads to death. And sadly, ever since Genesis chapter 3, humanity has continued to pass sin on forever and ever. And so every person born into this world is born into life with a broken nature, a sin nature. Every one of us. That's how it works. Then what we hear is we hear the gospel message. The good news. That's all the gospel is. And what's the gospel message say? It says, look, we were all born broken. We were meant to be in relationship with God, but there was sin, and sin has tweaked us. But the good news of the gospel says, but Jesus came to take away the effects of the sin and to restore relationship. That's what the, that's what the gospel says simply. And, and even better, it says, and he does this in a way full of grace. He freely gives that life, that wholeness and completion to anybody who would take it. No matter what they have done, no matter what their past has been, he will heal that relationship. He's willing to do that. And when we put our faith and trust in him, the relationship with God is restored for eternity. And you'll be able to spend eternity in a new body, on a new planet, 
where God rules and reigns over everything. And it will be glorious. Right? That's what the gospel tells us. But here's the, here's the problem of what we've, we're finding in churches today. Is that part is glorious and it's true and it's right. But sometimes we just stop you right there. And just basically tell you, hey, if you pray the prayer, you're fine. Don't worry about anything until eternity. But that's not the whole gospel. It's incomplete. Because what we find out is, no, 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 there's actually quite a bit more. Jesus said, I came that you would have an abundant life. Not just the afterlife, but the present life. I want to send my Holy Spirit to come and dwell inside of you and transform you. And change you. So that you begin living in an entire new way. The gospel is, is described as a seed in, in Jesus' parables. And the seed of the gospel, that message, is planted. But growth still has to happen. If you go to the store and buy yourself a, a set of seeds because you want to grow a garden. And you just keep the seeds in the little packet. And everybody who comes over, you want to show them your garden. And you're like, see, I got the seeds right here. It's my garden. Well, that garden's not going to do much until you put those things in the ground and start watering it and letting it get some light, right? Otherwise, it's a pretty boring garden and you're not going to take much out of it. It's the same thing. If we just say the gospel message is pray the prayer. Ooh, you got your ticket into heaven. That's it. Just keep holding on to your ticket. Don't lose that thing. No. What's supposed to happen is you're supposed to be given this new life and that seed is supposed to be planted and you're supposed to grow and you're supposed to mature and you're supposed to become fruitful. All of the genetic potential in a seed for, is there for fruitfulness in life. But until it grows and matures, there will be no fruit. And that is what we're called to in our relationship with God. So what's the outcome of a mature, practical faith? Why would James make the effort to say, look, you've got to grow. It's time to grow. Is it just so, oh, you have like, it's like you're a graduate from high school with honors. So they give you like the little special tassel to wear on your graduation gown. Oh, they made it with honors. They were a mature Christian. That's how they get into heaven. No, no, it's not about that. That's where we experience abundant life. That's where we experience the life that Jesus came to provide for us. That's where we begin to find our purpose in life. We're called to maturity. Uh, Paul says it this way in Ephesians 4, 14 to 16. He says that the reason that we're called to maturity is so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. Pause there for a second. Guys, that's how a lot of Christians experience their Christian life. It's like I became a Christian because I thought this is what I was supposed to do and I've just been beat up ever since. I'm blown over here, I'm blown over there, I'm knocked back over here. I feel like it's harder becoming a Christian. I'd rather just stay in my sins. It was way easier to live. Where is this joy? Where is this peace? It's because there hasn't been any maturity yet. All right, and he goes on, he says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You might know this, you might not. You might not even care, but I'm gonna describe it to you anyway. When a tree grows up, it also grows down. Okay, the taller the tree, the deeper the roots should be. Otherwise, 
I mean, when you, if you ever go up to Sequoia the National Park and see the giant trees, you're like, oh my goodness, how is that thing standing? Like, don't get too close. If that thing falls over, you're done for. How is it that it stands so tall? It stands so tall because its roots go so deep. It's like if they build a skyscraper. It's not just sitting flat on the ground, guys. <laughs> Talk to Richard, who works in construction. They go deep and very deep, 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 deep with these, these bulks of, of concrete and steel to hold something up. A tree, when it grows up, it has to grow down. It builds a root system for strength and nutrition. And our transformation as Christians, as we grow as Christians, it's meant to impact your life now. Too many Christians never experience the joy and the peace and stability and love that comes from maturing as a Christian and letting their roots go deep. That's not what we're called to. It reminds me of Psalm 1-3, which says, the one who follows the law of God is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So this is the challenge from James. It's gonna be a practical challenge to grow. Humbling ourselves before God and letting him grow us, as it'll tell us in chapter four. Now here's the thing. Here's how you can get stuck with this though. Even as I describe that to you, it might be a little offensive. Because you might feel like, well, hold on. You're calling me a little child that's fighting with other kids in the playpen, like, I'm an adult. I've been walking with God for a while. I'm pretty mature. I got this Christianity thing figured out. Well, maybe you are. But what I have found from walking with the Lord for several decades now is that I always see God graciously growing me more and calling me towards deeper places with him. And this letter wants to take the faith out of your heads and, and we talk a lot about moving it from your head to your heart, but not just from your head to your heart. He wants to take it from your head all the way out to your hands. He says, I want you to be Christians, not just in faith in your head and in your heart, but also in your actions, the way you live, the way you do things, the way you talk, the way you spend your money, the way you love others. A faith that not only changes our thoughts, but also our actions. Jesus lived out that sort of a faith, and so should we. So, whether you're a mature Christian or an infant in your faith, there's going to be something for you in this letter. Now, as I finish, finish, really finish, one other thing that I do want to um, say. How is it that you can get the most out of a study like this? All right? You might be thinking, that's what I need. Finally, just some simple, practical, straightforward stuff. How do you do that? How do you get the most out of it? Well, first off, be here. You gotta come, show up. I know it's online. I know it's on a podcast. If you can't get it any other way, do that. But if you can, be here and ask God, as he's gonna tell us in verse five of chapter one, ask God for the wisdom and clarity to hear what it is that God wants to do in you. What I have found is reading the Bible many, many times, reading a book like James over and over, is a lot of things kind of slip right by me but there'll be a few things here and there that just light up. And if this is your first time through James, it might be something about your mouth because he's gonna talk a lot about your mouth and the things you say. And you may read through it and you're like, whoa, this is where I need to focus. But you've gotta be here and see what it is that's gonna be there for you. 
And so as you do that, as you ask the Lord for wisdom and, and choose to be honest with what you find in your life, because that's the other thing. A lot of times we like to lie to ourselves. Oh, I got that part okay. It's good enough, whatever. Be honest with yourself. But what you'll find is there's probably going to be some places in the book of James for every one of us where our life doesn't line up with the scripture. All right? And so we have to be willing and ready to change. So when we approach this, we look at ourselves and we say, hey, am I living that way? I'm not just listening to a message. This is what God's calling me to, towards. Am I living that way? Um, and if you're part of life groups, life groups are going to be very simple in this season. Because what we're basically going to cover is we're going to say, here's what he teaches. Are you living that way? And, and we'll be able to have um, some, some good conversations on that. And, and if you aren't already involved in one of those, and I know most of you are, many of you are, please jump in. There's groups that are going. This is a great time to start. It's also a great time to invite friends to church over these next several weeks as we go through this book. Why? Because a lot of people want to hear that stuff. First off, I'll tell you this. A lot of non-Christians, if they were sitting in here today, they'd be like, wait a minute. Is that a Christian who just told me that he's sometimes a hypocrite? Hmm. Yes! <laughs> I'm not trying to be a hypocrite. I'm trying to grow, and there's a place to grow. And, and a, a lot of people might want to hear about this practical faith. All right? Enough of my talking to you. I'm going to pray for you right now. Close your eyes. Bow your heads with me, please. Lord God, I do thank you for this book of James. And I know that a lot of the things that we've talked about here this morning... Um, are, are literally to set up where we're going with this, Lord. But I do want to do some, something right now with you, Lord, that is of a spiritual nature. Lord, I would like to pray over the church this morning. And I'd like to just ask you, Lord, to give us teachable hearts. Lord, I pray if there are any here in this room today that do not know you, First off, I, I pray, Lord, that you would start there. I pray that if any are here that don't know you, don't have a relationship with you, if not put their faith in Jesus so that he can restore that right relationship, Lord, I pray that right now you would come to them, that you would pull on their hearts, that they would realize this is what I need. This is where I'm gonna find meaning and purpose in my life. Show them the truth, Lord. May your Holy Spirit awaken their hearts to your existence and your truth. And I pray, Lord, that they would be able to put their hope and their trust in you. And secondly, Lord, to the next group of people here in this church today, Lord, I pray that you would even now begin expanding our hearts, making space for what you want to pour into us through this study in James. I know that there's going to be places, maybe some things that we've been struggling with and working with for years. I pray, Lord, that as you teach us and as you grow us and as you mature us by your Holy Spirit, that we'd be able to receive that and grow in fruitfulness in the way that you would have us to be. Transform us, Lord. Give us the courage to change our behaviors. Give us the courage to trust you in these places. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to have your work among us as a church, that we would be transformed by the work, your work, in our hearts and lives. And may we be filled with joy and peace. In Jesus' name, amen.